Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. The official sponsor of this episode is the Swindler, Joss Swindles. To be more like Joss, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show. You're listening to The Marler Show. A little bit of me and a little bit more of Joe. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Hello, no, it's hello, my bib. Hello, my bib. Hello, my bib. Do you know who that is, Tom? I haven't got a clue what you're doing. That is the start of Hello, My Baby by Lady Smith, Black Man Barzo. I feel like I should know that. Bands. Yeah. Hello, my bib. Hello, my bib. Hello, my bib. There is more to it, but anyway. Hello and welcome to our show. Uh, sorry about that nonsense start, but I tell you what was good was our committee meeting the other night. Did you enjoy oh, wasn't that? Wasn't it song? nice, Joe? I really enjoyed it. You know, we got to meet all these people who had just been names and bad nicknames that Steve has made up until this point. How many names can you remember from the committee meeting? That we, all of them. Without yeah. looking at any sheets or any emails. Eyebrows. Promise me you're not going to look. I can remember um, all of them. Um, should we get No way. What? <laughs> Right, okay, I need four from you. Okay. Matt, Zimmerman. Good. Rollable Dyson. Good. And Half Pint. Really good, but I, I don't think we ever got Half Pint's actual name. What's Let's ask Steve. Steve, what was Half Pint's actual name? Julie. Julie? Me Julie. Dabba, 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 me Julie. Isn't that uh, Ali G song? It's a great song. And do you know what? It's such an effective song that uh, every time I ever meet anyone called Julie, that song's in my head. Julie! Mama, 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 Julie! <laughs> what about when you meet a Judy? Do you do the same? Me Judy! Dabba, dabba, dibby, dabba, dabba, Judy! <laughs> Who else is there? Rudy! Rudy! With Rudy, I tend to favour the specials with Rudy, a message to you. Stop your messing around. I like cricket. No, no. No, I don't like cricket. No, I love it. <laughs> the pause was too long. Um, while we're doing this sort of minutiae of our task, I'd like to send a good luck message to Sophie, who's starting a new job at Swansea Uni. This message, Joe, has come from someone called Boom Boom Sean. Say boom, boom, boom. Everybody say Sean. Sean it. Say boom, boom, boom. Let me hear you say. Sean it. Say boom, boom, boom. Let me hear you say. Lads, try it with Sophie. I think it might work better. Yeah, okay, yeah it does do it actually. Again. Say boom, boom, boom. Everybody say, good luck, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the worst things we've ever done. Oh, God, fuck my life. Um, right, we need to talk about the Jack Charlton fiasco um, for this month's mm. documentary club, don't we? Yeah, the issue here, Joe, is that the excellent Jack Charlton documentary, which we're looking forward to and which won the uh, poll of our Patreon subscribers as the documentary we should feature in this month's Documentary Club. Well, it was available for free, Joe, 
um, certain iPlayer, it now looks as if it's disappeared from everything free only in the week that we need to watch it because it is on BBC Two from next week when everyone else can watch it to see what we thought of it and if it made sense. But we seem to be in this strange Charlton interregnum where... Whoa, 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 whoa. You think you could just get away with that, do you? (laughs) Interregnum? Fuck off. That is not a word. If it is, I'd like you to explain it to me immediately. An interregnum, I think, is the period between two reigns. Okay, so you couldn't have said gap. I should have said gap. The problem is, Joe, we're going to have to pay upwards of £2.99 each. Nope. To watch this documentary. Jasper got some birthday money recently, so he can lend me a couple of quid. I think Arthur's got an Amazon voucher, like a £10 Amazon voucher. He can't spend that on his own because he's not old enough, so I've taken custody of it. He'll never know that I've shaved two ninety nine off it. Um, available on Microsoft for three forty nine, Google Play for four forty nine, but it's in HD. YouTube for four forty nine in HD. Rakuten. I don't know what Rakuten is apart from... Is it what appears on Barcelona shirts? Apple TV, 549 HD. 5.49? What are you getting more for that? That's a fucking rental as well. And Apple TV, I don't have any of these options, Steve. Joe, can you just watch it and then film it on your phone and call me? I don't actually mind paying for it because by all accounts, it's going to be a pretty epic documentary. So, right, shall we Shall we get a guest on or are we just going to chat Winnits for the next four hours? I'd say let's get a guest on, Joe. Yeah, but Winnits could be fun. Right, okay. Our guest today is former Special Forces soldier, Dean Stott. Hello, Dean. Hello, Joe. Hello, Tom. Thank you for joining us. Oh, fucking hell, hang on. Are they magpies? One for sorrow, two for joy. Ah, it's a sign. It's a magpie at Sergio Van Joe's there. Are they magpies or are they blackbirds? Is it, has it got a white element to it as well? Yeah. It's a magpie. So one for sorrow, two for joy. That tells me this is going to be a good episode. What do you reckon? Yeah, without a doubt. Do you not believe in any of that? No, <laughs> probably don't. You're a cold-hearted, won't finish that sentence because I know from loads of the films and programmes I've watched that Special Forces soldiers never talk about the certain count and you should never ask about such count either, so you need to move on from that. Is that true? You should never ask. You've done your research well, yeah. Tom, did you see how quickly he was just like, yeah, you've done your research, move the fuck on. That's what you did with your eyes just then, Dean. Un- unbelievable skills. Is your name definitely Dean Stott? Because I heard that Andy McNabb is not actually called Andy McNabb, but he changed his name for writing purposes or for his public life to Andy McNabb so it wouldn't cause problems with the people who used to know him, which I thought was fine, but possibly a bit of a stitch up on someone unrelated to Andy McNabb, SAS Andy McNabb, who was actually just called Andy McNabb. So no, that is my name, but yes, Andy McNabb obviously wanted to maintain that sort of discretion and changed his name for that. You you signed the Official Secrecy Act, so there's certain things that you can't discuss. And, And so for me, I know where the line is, I know what I can can't talk about but again going back to the days of old when Andy McNabb and Emlock were in Iraq um, you know you didn't have Google whereas now you can Google and there's a lot of information about the special forces out in the public domain so that's already open source so you're not doing anything in regards to repeating that but things like operations names of guys and, and certain tactical TTPs we call them or standard operational procedures we you know we can't disclose so there's an element we can and can't talk about. Tom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the most obvious question I have here, and it is, 
What does special forces actually do? Yeah, well, so, so the special forces we we very much different from the rest of the the UK forces. So everything from the clothing we have, the weapons we have, uh, the capabilities we have. So, you know, we we do various methods of insertion. So whether that's skydiving, diving, fast boats, we we call it Pepsi Week when we when we practice all these Pepsi Max weeks. So it's everything from the guys can exit up to 30,000 feet at night to a target area. Uh, you can come in by, by the helicopters, you can abseil in, you can dive covertly five kilometers in and climb onto the side of an oil rig. And, you know, and our dive sets are fully self-contained, so they don't give off any bubbles. So everything we do is, is, is covert, um, you know, diving down to the submarines without giving away too much. You know, there, there's that element. So, there's the insurgent element, and then there's the actual skill sets on the ground, which is which is your demolitions. You know, I was a forward air controller, so I'd be chatting to the jets, just dropping the munitions on the target area and things like that. And so it's um, it ranges. You know, we we do a lot of you know airborne operations, maritime operations, counterterrorism. So any hostage rescues, either in UK or around the world, we would get involved when covert operations high value targets or manhunts you know people of, of interest you know especially the, some of the top taliban guys we, we, we go for them and um, unconventional warfare as well you know trying to um disrupt or overthrow a government or an occupying power an example of that which i probably could give is um the when the russians were in afghanistan um the sas were there training the mujahideen to fight the russians you know i mean it's them sort of things we get involved with it's it's operations that you don't tend to see normally on TV, but can have big political ratifications. And that's why we don't have the same weapon system or clothes as the rest of the military, because if caught, the UK government would deny who we are. So the Mujahideen is real, is it? Yeah, Mujahideen is, is real. And obviously, you know, when the Russians came in and, and fought in, in, in Afghanistan, the UK special forces would help um, fight them. So with the surface-to-air missiles to take out their... Um, hind helicopters and then fast forward a couple of decades later three decades later and we're fighting the same enemy so um but they're, they're the sort of things we, we get involved with you know we need to assist i'm almost certain the last time i heard the mujahideen was on four lions i thought it was made up have you seen four lions have either of you oh, seen it. four lions yeah i love four oh lions, my yeah. god I, yeah. the 12 bottles of bleach scene oh fuck me dead <laughs> i put on my ira voice what do you mean you put on your ira voice <laughs> Oh, put on my female voice. Oh, you've got a fucking beard. You know, just covered it up. Oh. <laughs> Make yeah. me die. Sorry. Carry uh. <laughs> is it true, Dean, that talking about there, what happened in Afghanistan with the Russians, is it, is it true that Osama bin Laden was, was trained by the Americans? There's a lot of conspiracy theories in, in there, you know, but it's a lot of history. You need to look back where, where it all started and, and who's upset who. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of things. You know, when we went to Afghanistan, actually, the Afghans don't like the Brits, hate the Brits more than the Americans. And you're like, well, why is that? But if you look at history, it was the third time that we'd invaded Afghanistan. Um, oh, so, the, so the British history, the British Empire sometimes gets us into trouble. I remember when I left the military, I had my own security company and we, we had trained the Kurdish special forces out in Kurdistan. And, the, and the, the general came in on the opening address and I had the team sat in the front and all the students, his students were behind me. And he talked gave us a bit of history on Kurdistan and he talked about how the Brits came in in whatever year and it was split between four countries, Iran, Iraq, Turkey and, and Syria. I was like, here we go. We're picking up the pieces again. But uh, yeah, so we have a, we have a longer military history 
Let's say, Dean, that Joe has been asked to volunteer on the basis of his his ceaseless bravery on the rugby pitch, and I've been asked to volunteer because there's been some dreadful mix-up. On our first day of the selection process, what happens? So selection process tests you on everything, the physical, the mental, um, you know, puts you in situations in the high-octane environments to see how, what decision-making you're, you're going to do. But from day one, the first four weeks is actually all physical. You know, you start in Wales uh, in the Brecon Beacons and in about 200, you sat there on the parade square. Your name gets called out, you get put onto a wagon and then you're at the start point then. You do, the instructor will give you a coordinate, which you put on the map and then you have to run to the next checkpoint. And you've got weights on your back between 50 and 70 pounds of, of weight and then when you get to the next checkpoint, you know, they'll just tell you you're the next one. You just keep doing this. And it ranges between about 25 and 30 kilometers a day you're doing for the first three weeks. And yeah, the final week is, is test week. And if you don't hit the hit the times, you, you get one red card. Um, the second one, you're gone. And then on the last day, we do 40 kilometers in the day. You then have four hours rest. And then you do 40 miles in 20 hours uh, with what? 70 pound minus your, your kit. I'm not. I'm not doing it, Tom. You've just given uh, an example of you know us going through that solution. I'm not fucking lasting five minutes, mate. I've done a couple of army days here and there for team building, and I remember vividly one down in Exmouth. Is it Exmouth? Yeah, Limston. Limston. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. There was two incidents that really stick out to me. Was the swimming pool incident? Oh God, this is bad. The swimming pool incident where. So I can't swim very well. I can swim okay. to survive, sort of, although I've never been put in that position to survive yet. But we had to keep getting in and out of the water really quick as part of this. So we got up at like six o'clock in the morning and they're doing lengths and the, and then all of a sudden they were like, right, you've got to get to the sides. But bear in mind, around this swimming pool, it's like all different depths. And <laughs> one of the boys, he's a hooker, who's a bit, yeah, about six inches shorter than me. So we're having to jump in and getting out, jump in, get out, jump in and get out. Every time he jumped in, he'd be at least 15 to 20 seconds longer to everyone <laughs> trying to then get back up and get because it, it was a bit bit deeper for him. Um, but I'd say after about 10 times of doing that, I was, I was close to throwing up. And luckily, I say this in the nicest way possible, uh, one of the lads started having a bit of a fit. Turns out he was epileptic um, and jumping in and out of swimming pools really quick isn't good for you. So... Fortunately for us, that means the session was stopped. And then the second session that sticks out is having to move this makeshift cannon from one end of the field to the other. And I was like, well, that's a piece of piss. You know, we've got all different metal boxes full of rounds or whatever it is and stuff like that. And there's round bits to make that bit and that bit. And we all like to get a bit. And I was like, well, we'll just move it over there then, shall we, lads? And they're like, yeah, but there's one rule. You have to do it on your back. I went, what do you mean you have to do it on your back? <laughs> we all had to like shimmy across this field yeah. whilst dragging these things either side. I was, I was dying. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I am exaggerating a little bit, but I still feel like I was dying. I can, I can never understand the, those team tasks, you know, because why never in the battlefield would you be shimmying on your back, dragging a cannon <laughs> across the field. So I've, I've never really got the point of that. So what you're telling me is that I, that it was actually pointless that when they're there shouting at me, like, this is how we do it here. You get on with it. Or you fuck <laughs> off. You're now telling me that that's complete bollocks. They definitely wouldn't. 
in the middle of Iraq decide to move that cannon, dismantle it all from one side of the field, and then go and build it over the other line on their backs to do it. Yeah, some of those exercises are a strain. I think it's almost getting you comfortable with being uncomfortable, and that's what the military are quite good. Um, you know, they put in the worst case scenarios, and if you can cope within those scenarios, then anything better is a bonus. That's how I see it. There seems to be, Dean, when you watch the TV shows, which I am guess are a sort of sanitised approximation of what really goes on, there seems to be a lot of shouting. There's many reasons why I couldn't do it, but I think the shouting, like if I'd done two or three of those days you just described, I'm going to be knackered. I'm generally not very good when I'm tired. I think if someone starts shouting me, at me as well, I just think I'd, I'd lose my rag in a very unprofessional way. Oh, for fuck's sake, all right, just tell me, don't shout at me. I think the TV shows, I know it's show you're on about, because I was really asked to be the chief instructor and I turned well, that yeah. down. Yeah, I turned that down. I got Ant and Foxy on the show and I stepped away because I wanted to keep my integrity within the group and doing TV, a bit like Andy McNabb thing. You, you just, you don't really do it. But um, there's a fine line between authenticity and entertainment with TV. Um, you know, the screaming and shouting, that doesn't actually happen on special forces selection. So our selection process Actually, the instructors hardly have any sort of dialogue with you. You know, the first four weeks when you run around the mountains, they don't even know your name, you're a number. And then you go for a month of that and then they're like, right, selection starts now. But if they need to shout it, it means you're not doing something right or you're, you're not listening. So on selection, you need to be able to disseminate information quite quickly. Yes, they may remind you or say it again, but they, they don't need to shout because the selection is that hard anyway that they don't need to put any ad- added pressure on you. So, so yeah, what you see on TV is, is very, very different from, from reality in, in the Special Forces. That pleases me. You're saying that it's actually easier in real life. Than the t- <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we just treat you like adults, and, 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 and that's the thing. It's very much more grown-up. You, you shouldn't really get shouted at all the time unless you're obviously a poor soldier. Talk to us about um, some of the places that you've served, Dean. Where where are the da- most dangerous places that you've you've been involved with? The, the most dangerous ones are, are in the Middle East. Your 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 Afghanistan's and Iraq's. Whilst in the military, um, I was fortunate to go to the Balkans as well, uh, which at the time was Bosnia and and Kosovo. But your Afghan and Iraq, they were the most uh, dangerous ones. And then when I left the military, I found myself working in likes of Somalia, Yemen, uh, Libya, and, and and places like that. So I I have my time in the military. And then obviously my time in, in the private security sector. Just where, where there was trouble, we were always there. What makes the Middle East so dangerous? We tend to find with most of these countries, you know, where there's oil, there's trouble. It needs to be obviously some sort of resources as, as well. And the Middle East as well, I think the Western world, we don't really understand their cultures as well. You know, and that's one thing we really do in, in, in the special forces. Uh, you know, because what you see on on TV and everything else is, is, is the offensive action. It's the, it's the sexy stuff, you know, like jumping out of planes and blowing down walls and, and things like that. And the red laser dots going everywhere. You know, that's 25% <laughs> of what we do, which, which we're very good at. Um, but that's almost like the last resort, but what we 50% of what we do is support and influence its hearts and minds. It's getting embedded with the locals, understanding in the politics, the demographics and the tribal influences. And when you really get down to it, it's, it's very confusing. And I think some, some states, some militaries, you know, they just don't understand that. Um, you know, it's, it's understanding what the locals want and what they want at the other end. Joe, I don't know what you're thinking here, but, you know, I'm really enjoying talking to you, Dean, and you seem very calm. Yeah. But I'm just No, I'm, I'm just not thinking, having it. I'm not having it. No, I'm just <laughs> thinking there's another Dean somewhere. This is, he's, he's, you know what he's doing? He's luring us. He's, he's, 
he's got that look about him. I can tell. I can see it in his eyes. He's got this. Yeah, I'm happy go lucky. I'm calm. I'm controlled. And never die. Next minute, he's just fucking snapped your neck. <laughs> but I think that that's where the special forces is. We, we talk about that offensive action. You you can bring it up and bring it down. Um, and we have that in our arsenal. But that's I mean, we are very calm and collective. You know, we on our selection process, we have a thing called SEER, Survival Evasion Resistance Extraction. So it's interrogation. So I've been interrogated. So, um, you know, these podcasts are quite easy. You know, I just keep calm and collected. <laughs> oh, okay. But actually, okay. But they actually tell you, they, they tell you when you're, when you're on interrogation processes, you can't show any sort of emotion. You can't show anger. You can't show fear and things like that. So it's something we're, we're used to because obviously if they, if they sense any sort of fear or anger, they'll, they'll, they'll probe it. They'll probe it. <laughs> <laughs> A different if probe. Was, <laughs> if I was if I was in charge of, did you say the interrogation pro? I was just about to say the torture process. I've accelerated that fast. I'd probably probe early on as a way of um, getting someone to talk. <laughs> so that goes on that that interrogation process. What as all the sort of stereotypes that you always see in films and series actually go on, like getting waterboarded, getting hung upside down for hours, getting electrocuted or stuff like that is, is or is that just all dramatized? Okay. Again, something dramatized, but it, it depends on the, on the enemies. You know, we're fighting enemy going back to the, your, your quote about Andy McNabb and how things have changed and evolved from then, you know, days of old, when they got interrogated on their selection process, we had the Geneva convention. And it was name, rank, number, blood group, religion, date of birth. And that's the only five things you would ever say. Obviously, the enemy is different now. And it's like, well, we'll just kill you. So you need to stay live as long as possible. So it's actually building a relationship with your interrogator. Basically, it's to keep you alive long enough that the guys will come and rescue. So again, how the world's changed. But again, we talked about technology. You know, if you would say to me, if they were to interrogate me, say, where are the SBS based? I'd say in pool, in Dorset. Because you can Google that. I'm not giving anything secret away. So it's knowing what you can and can't say, but staying alive long enough. You talk about building a relationship with your interrogator, but where's the line that it becomes, what is it, Munchausen's? What's the one where you fall in love with your... Stockholm Syndrome. In, yeah, 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 Stockholm Syndrome, yeah. There must be a fine line between actually falling in love with your interrogator. Has that ever happened? Uh, I've never fallen in love with any of my interrogators, luckily. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be attracted to them. He's probably got beards like you, Joe. So, um, hey, hey, yeah. hey, I'm a niche market, all right? <laughs> yeah. Very, very niche. For you to interrogate, to let them know that you are a human being, it's trying to humanize you as well, rather than think you're, you're an enemy. And, and, it, and that's where you start building that, that relationship. Because if you start doing that, you know, they may let their guard down as well, and you may see opportunities to, to get out. Dean, could you do a verbal interrogation of Joe for us? Ooh. Put on the spot now, yeah, yeah. Hey, you won't, you won't get shit from me, Dean. So we've already, we've already established that he gets angry quite quick. So it's, do uh, I, it's or is that a double up. bluff? Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, they, they may talk about your family. They may say things about, it and it's then, you know, if they see a weakness, then they'll, they'll start probing on that. You know, because this is why, obviously, your anonymity needs to be kept secret because. Nowadays, they can find where you live. And, and, and again, they'll, they'll, there's all little tricks that they, they, they do. They say, well, look, we, here's a video of your, your family or, or things like that and, and just play mind games with you. And also, if you're in a team, they'll be like, well, we've spoken to your guys. They've told us everything. Why aren't you telling us? Even to the point when they hand you a pen, you don't grab a pen like that as if you're going to write because 
you don't know what video cameras are. They could edit it, you know, that this guy's signed there. So no. there's, trick, there's tricks that you grab the pen at arm length. So they couldn't even edit it to look like that you were, you're signing something. And bits of paper, they may say, read from the bit of paper in front of you, which is a, a reasonable request that you would do. But you check the back of the paper to make sure it doesn't say, no, we were guilty of bombing innocent people. You know, there's all these little little things that they're going to try and do. I think the only time I sort of gave away any any emotion on mine was when I was playing cards with the interrogator. And then if, if I won, I got some jelly beans sounds quite nice this interrogation yeah this is really good there was no probing whatsoever no there's no probing but he then took my he then took my boots off um, oh you know, okay here we go very yeah yeah and then started cleaning my feet with a wet wipe like, <laughs> was this definitely an interrogation <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 but i i showed i showed some emotion then it was like it was like i, I think i clenched my fist and I, I pulled a face like oh, what the? you stay the fuck away from my feet <laughs> yeah exactly so Although that uh, is pleasant so you can carry on for now <laughs> It is, and then the next interrogator come in, and then it'll be a bit more harsh. And they do the good cop, the bad cop. They, they they put you through the process. But what it is is you're you're tired, you're fatigued, and so when you are then getting interrogated, you're at your weakest. And then any time you're not in getting interrogated, you're in stress positions. Uh, so maybe you know your hands behind your head, your legs crossed, very uncomfortable positions to be in. And as soon as you move, they'll just you know even if you bring your elbows slightly in, they'll just put a little little finger in the back and just open it up. So all that has been going on before you then get interrogated as well. So when you go in there, you, you've still got to remain alert. So with your England team, who's standing firm and who's snitching? Uh, let's start with who's not going to snitch. You've got your Ellis Genges, you've got your Carl Sinclairs. Mako's not giving anything up, is he? Mako's not, he's not listening full stop because he, he won't be, <laughs> yeah. So Sink is actually been heard goading Australian team before when uh, the, I think it was their team manager ended up getting sacked or something because of certain text messages that went round yes. and someone yes. had dobbed on someone else and we were playing them in an autumn international and for some reason Sink goes wild sometimes and he loves a bit of sledging and out of nowhere he was just like fucking snitches get stitches bitches and we were like what the <laughs> fuck is going on here mate and he just kept wandering around the pitch saying yeah you heard snitches get stitches i was like sink i'm not entirely sure what's going on here so he ain't snitching who's going to give us up early door i'm looking at i'm looking at a george ford i'm afraid because you could ply him with booze couldn't you yeah you just tip a few pints down george yeah he's not a big drinker so if you if you were to get one or two in him he'd give up everything who else is bad tom curry you could probably get after him you know, he's young, he's naive, he's a hell of a rugby player, but he's clueless. So they'll be the ones to give up first, I reckon. I could see Ben Young's inadvertently giving something away, just <laughs> accidentally blurting out the location of the secret base. That You've got him down to a T. Whoa. Right, OK, so on that revelation then, Joe, Snitch Curry is clueless, says Marla. Uh, it's probably time for some Patreon shout-outs. These are the people who pay for the show. Our official sponsors today include The Bounty Hunter, Alistair Bounty. The Locksmith, that's Jordan Blaylock. Proud Mary. Mary makes rope bracelets and they're beautiful. We're also sponsored by President Christopher Bartlett, The Windmill, Ian Miller. And we're sponsored by Totes Emosh, James Oaks. To be more like James, Ian, Christopher, Mary, Jordan and Alistair... Search for The Joe Marler Show on Patreon and grow the show. 
The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Shrink the Books is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favorite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namone Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behavior creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Books is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. Those were the advertisements, and this is Joe Marler. And Joe Marler, I believe it is your question. Go. How close have you come, Dean, to being killed? Have you ever come close to to death out on a an insurgent? Did you say incision or insurgent? Insurgents, yeah. Um, for me, I think every time we step off the helicopter, you know, even when we're training, that's one thing with special forces. Every time we train, it's live firing. So everything we do is live bullets. Um, so we train for real because there's no point in shouting bang, bang um, because you don't have the same effect. But when you're using live ammunition, you know, you're then switched on and alert. But everything from parachuting, I've had a couple of malfunctions, parachuting, diving, there's been diving incidents. Um, but operational-wise, you know, I get the question, what was the scariest moment for you? And... On one of my tours in Afghan, we used to dress up as, as locals and we had to go out and pick up agents. Um, so I would be there with a turban, big beard. I'd have a, an Afghani next to me. I'd be driving the vehicle and we used to go into, you know, the local city where Kandahar it was. And we have a free, free vehicle process. I would drive past the person first to make sure he was there. Second vehicle would pick him up. Third vehicle would make sure that there's no counter anti-surveillance, any surveillance teams following us. So this was a normal procedure. But every time you used to go into Kandahar, you know, you, there's no point in planning a route because every time you went in there, they, they'd always do roadblocks. So you just had to try and get to that position. But this day that I was driving in, it was a roadblock, so I had to turn right. I mean, I went down this narrow alleyway, but it's a market street. There's people walking down, you know, there's stalls either side, but it was bumper to bumper with traffic. And I could see people pointing at the vehicle. I don't like putting anything in my eyes. So I couldn't put my brown contact lenses in. So my, I'd like piercing blue eyes, you know, I had makeup on. So it probably for me, I thought they were standing out. And because you know, you shouldn't be there. Your, your senses are heightened. You're like, I shouldn't be here. They've, they've spotted me. So I leant over, I looked over to my, my Afghan partner and I said, I think we've been compromised. And he sort of agreed. <laughs> so the actual procedure for this is for me to grab from underneath my seat, a submachine gun, a snub nose machine gun, and I empty 30 rounds, 30 bullets into the windscreen to give myself some time or give myself some space. I then grab the weapon, which is by my door, go to the, the boot of the vehicle, and there's an RPG, like a, a rocket-propelled grenade. And then you blow the vehicle up because you don't want them having the vehicle because it's got all the sensitive communication script. So that's the procedure. So in my head, I'm, I'm running through that. Are you happy? Yeah, 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 I'm happy. As I go to do it, you know, we're slowly nudging forward, slowly nudging forward with the traffic and still people are tapping on the window, you know, point arms that, you know, I'm going to be all over CNN tonight in an orange boiler suit. 
So I, as I did that, I went to grab the weapon. But luckily, the second vehicle had just come around the corner. And my friend came over the net. And he's like, stop, stop, stop. He said, your turbine's t- caught in the door. So when I got in the vehicle, my turbine was hanging out the door. So I, re- I use that a lot when and how you can mis- in, misread a situation in the fact that actually I thought everyone was, was a threat when actually everyone was being very kind and letting me know that my turbine was caught in the door and how things could have easily gone wrong. So there was no actual, no explosions, no shooting. But for me, in ter- you know, I was, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was flapping a bit, yeah. I read this quote from you, Dean, saying anticipation is worse than participation. And that sort of makes sense to me, but I almost want to ask you about the aftermath rather than what happens before. Let's say you've been in a situation like the one you just described. There must be phenomenal amounts of adrenaline and stress hormone and endorphin racing through you. So how long is the tail, the emotional and the mental and the physical tail after you've been involved in something? So going in, you need to get into the right mindset. You know, when we used to go in on the, on the helos, you know, so we had the Chinooks, the double twin props, no windows in there as well. And, and you need to get in. Just before the... you carry on with that, Dean, you just said Chinook. Yeah. Is that the helicopter? That's the helicopter, yeah, with the twin. twin oh, I thought, I've helicopter. always thought it was a Chinook. Yeah, yeah, Chinook, Chinook. Yeah, yeah. There's no... no, I need it clearing up. My wife thinks it's a Chinook. We'll go Chinook. It's spelled, spelled Chinook, yeah. We'll go Chinook. Good. Oh, that's one nil me then. <laughs> Fuck you, Daisy. Any RAF listeners will probably be shouting at me like, no, it's a Chinook. Um, but, um, but yeah, we used to call that as a lifter. And when we're going in, you know, before you'd even gone on a lifter, you know what the operation is, you know what the plan is. And, and so you're going, going through it on your head. But we used to have the, the little iPods. So you'd be listening to like ACDC, Thunderstruck, Metallica, Enter the Sandman, getting into that, into that zone. But then when you come out, you need to sort of, as you touched on in, you need to temper it. You'd be listening like Enya or something on the, on the way back. No, you've you got know, a chill-out mix. You'd be sticking on 0-7 <laughs> and air. You'd, you'd, you'd have, you'd have, you would have a, uh, a chill-out Joni mix. Mitchell. Yeah. Just, yeah. I looked at love on both sides now. <laughs> Sorry. Because, yeah, you need to come down. But what we, what one thing we, we do, though, which I thought was great in the Special Forces, not be, we're not because we're the best in the world because we've got the best calibre of guys and the best training. It's because we're always learning. We're always evolving and, and, and changing. The enemy are changing their tactics and we need to change ours. So one thing we used to do is called a hot debrief. Uh, before, when, as soon as it was wheels down, the helicopter landed, before we go clean our weapons, get showered, was uh, what worked. And if we were going to do that again, what would we do differently? So we're always learning and evolving from that. But the anticipation was some participation. I was an instructor at Limston, actually, where Joe mentioned down in Exmouth on the commando course. And you used to see young students, especially when we're going through the, the water tunnels, you know, not everyone likes being in the water and things like that. And I used to say to them, look, don't think about it too much. If you, you can overthink things and start over and analyzing things, you know, just, just go do it. And then actually on reflection, when you look back, it's actually, that wasn't that bad either. So that's where that, that sort of quote comes in. No, it is that bad. When someone's fucking, <laughs> when you're trying to get through a sheep dip, is it the sheep like that, that tunnel yeah. that they put? Yeah, Mate, the that tunnel. is one, some of the scariest shit I've ever done. And you've got to rely on your, your teammate member to be able to pull you through it because it's, it's too long for you to get through on your own, too narrow. And someone's got to push you through it and then you've got to rely on someone to pull you through it. I'm like, I'm not fucking doing that again. And so when you, when you say it's not as bad as it is, I was like, it is. It's exactly as bad as I thought it was going to be. And it's that anticipation worse than participation. You know, afterwards you speak to him, like, it wasn't actually that bad. You're not in the Special Forces anymore. And there was a accident that you're involved in that, that contributed to that. What Talk us through that. 
Yeah, so I was going back out to Afghan again on another tour and um, we're doing pre-deployment training. So we go out to Oman and do all our training there and, and, and stuff like that. And um, so the new lads that just joined the squadron, just finished selection, they had to go do their hey-ho, high altitude, high opening jump, parachute jumping. So some Major's like, well, look, rest of the lads, you know, do some fun jumps. You know, I, I enjoy parachuting, but in the military, there's no such thing as a fun jump. So we, we, we were exiting the aircraft. You exit the aircraft at 15,000 feet. Unlike skydiving where you're clear aligned, you're still attached to the aircraft. And when, when you jump out the aircraft, the parachute will open uh, as close to 15,000 feet. And then you travel up to 30 minutes in the air, 50 kilometers to your target area. So you're basically navigating through the sky to where you want, want to be. So we'd done n- numerous of these jumps. I think it was the fourth jump of the day or something. And I, I exited the aircraft as I did before. But this time my leg got caught in the line above my head. So first of all, I was trying to clear my leg in time before the parachute opened and pulled my leg completely off. I couldn't clear it in time. Parachute opened and pulled my leg up over my head and to the right. Now, thankfully, my, my foot oh. did clear and wasn't ripped off completely. Otherwise, I would have bled out and wouldn't be having this conversation. But my first concern was, how was I going to land this? Um, I was drifting in and out of consciousness because you're at the limits of oxygen at 15,000 feet. I was vomiting because of the pain and no one in the team was aware there was a situation, you know, we had comms, but I wasn't just going to come up on the net and say, I've got a sore leg. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll deal with that when I, when I landed. And so I, I landed it one legged. It was a perfect landing, but unfortunately the damage sustained. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus in the knee, my hamstring, my calf and my quad. Oh, just a, just a small one then. Yeah. Yeah. Just a small one. I understand obviously rugby players tear ACLs and can continue, but fucking it. They don't tear them when they're 15,000 <laughs> feet in the air. And, then, and I've never seen an ACL go when the leg's been above their heads and to the right. Oh, my God, it's awful. Yeah, so unfortunately, after 16 years, that, that was the end of my, my military career. So then you've gone into, into private security, Dean. Right? Is this, in a way, because I guess you get relatively well remunerated for a reason, is it actually more dangerous than the special forces? It depends what you do, you know, without sounding like Liam Neeson, people with our skill sets, the natural progression is the private security industry. Um, so when I left, my wife was eight months pregnant. So, you know, I, I just needed to get work. Um, a lot of my friends had security companies who were dealing with piracy on the east coast of Somalia, but I was trying to find a niche myself. And within 48 hours, I was in Libya during the Arab Spring in Benghazi. And I soon understood that Libyans didn't want it being in another Afghan or Iraq, you know, once Gaddafi had fallen. Also, that these larger private security companies were charging six to seven figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans, which weren't actually in place. So I came home, my wife gave birth to our daughter and I took our life savings out, went back into Libya and I bought 30 weapons off the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and spent a month. Hang on, can I, yeah. can I just stop you there? How do you buy, like if, some, if Joe said to me, Tom, can you pick up 30 weapons on the black market? Mm. I wouldn't have the faintest idea where to start. How do you buy 30 weapons on the black market? Well, at the time, it was still the Arab Spring. So there was still, every, there was a, a huge proliferation of weapons. Everyone had weapons. Actually, what the shortage of was ammunition. So it was very easy to get my hands on, on, on weapons. And I just buried them between Tunis and Egypt, buried some communications kit and money. And I just spent a month on my own, writing my own evacuation plans, should we need them. We lived in Aberdeen at the time, which is an oil and gas capital of Europe. So I had exposure to the oil companies and I, I sold my evacuation plan and just, just left it on that. You know, the security industry is very diverse. You know, when you tell people in the security industry, I think a lot of them think you're a doorman from Club Tropicana. <laughs> when in fact, you know, I mean, it, it's surveillance, it's closed protection, it's coaching or mentoring. You know, each time I got a phone call, it was a different 
job. So you may take the UAE Royal Family Super Yacht from Barcelona to Maldives. The next one, you could be in, in Somalia, you know, um, helping an NGO. But the, the evacuation plans, I sat on them. I mean, in 2012, I just finished the London Olympics and I was in Benghazi when the American ambassador got killed. I think they made a film called 13 Hours. It's quite a popular film. So I was there that evening and I got eight German engineers safely through safe houses that I had in the desert back to Tripoli. Two years later, I was in Brazil covering the World Cup. It was now the Tripoli War, a civil war between the militias and the government. And my name got put forward. I, get, I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy saying, your name keeps coming up. You're the guy we need to speak to. And said, look, we're stuck in Tripoli. Can you, can you assist us? So they had their own close protection teams with the Canadians who were looking after the principals. Uh, but I came in and I, and I single-handedly you know, evacuated the Canadian embassy, 18 military and four diplomats from Libya to Tunis. But going back to the support and influence, I didn't need to touch any of my weapons. It was actually understanding the tribal influences, the demographics and the politics. So I went out and spoke to the tribal elders and told them of our intentions, told them that we were no threat. And it was all, all about respect and communication. So it sounds very sexy in Hollywood, but uh, that was the success of that. So the answer to your question, I have done more sensitive work being a private contractor than I had when I was in. So these weapons are still there? They're still there. Yeah, they're still caged. <laughs> so you sort of, hang on, so they're between where and where? Between Tunis and Egypt, yeah. If we leave Tunis, how far are we going? Straight on, is there a left at the lights? Or? <laughs> well, you, you've got the coastal road from Tunis, which is 100 kilometres to Tripoli. So there's a couple between there. Yeah, you, you then have Tripoli to Misrata, Misrata, Benghazi. Um, but for me, my, my thought process with this was that we could drive in across the border with no weapons, with no threat as well. And then we, if we needed them, they were accessible. But So they're very close to safe houses that I, I have there. Safe houses? Yeah, they're real things, yeah. Does that belong to someone and you just drop in every now and then or is it just deserted until you're there to use it? No, it, it's, it's occupied. Um, you obviously have a relationship with, with the owners and things like that because obviously if you need to utilise them, they tend to be, especially in, in, in Libya, there's a, houses don't have neighbours. It's not like UK where you have your neighbour who looks over your fence. You, they're like big compound walls. So it needs to be big enough that the vehicles can go in um, and we can cover them from air as well, you know, if you've got any sort of air, air uh, assets and be able to support whoever's in there with food and water and, and things like that and communications. Um, so, yeah, it's again, that's what I did is understood who the decent fixes were uh, and from what regions. I'm just completely blown away by everything that like you, you speak at a million miles an hour about all these different countries that I've never heard like i thought i thought it was tunisia why do you keep skipping off the last two letters well no it is tunisia but i just abbreviate tunis <laughs> oh good i thought it was is it <laughs> i was worried yeah, that yeah. i was missing well, tunis, tunis is the capital of tunisia so when i evacuated the canadian embassy that was their objective was to get to tunis not tunisia oh fucking so. thank god for that thank <laughs> god for that um take me back what is with all the beef between the sas and the sbs Days of old, obviously, they had their own selection process. It was like, well, who's the toughest sort of thing? Now you have that joint selection. That's that mutual respect because they, they operate to the same standard. You know, I think years back, you know, we probably talk about now because Falklands is over 30 years ago. But during the Falklands, the SAS were working independently from the SPS. And there was, a, there was an incident of blue on blue, friendly forces firing on friendly forces. And one of the SPS guys got killed by an SAS patrol. So there was that history anyway. But since then, as we said, we, we now work together. 
so the relationships are, are very tight. You know, I always get the question, you know, what's the difference between the SES and the SBS? And I say, well, SES is surprisingly average soldier, SBS slightly better soldier, and just leave it at that. It feels, Joe, like they should have some sort of annual SES v SBS table tennis tournament, some sort of safe way of getting rid of all that competition. Yeah, well, you actually say that. We're, we're not allowed, because we have injuries and deaths and guys retiring, you can't afford to play sport because if you get injured, that's just adds to the number. However, there's um, dispensation for one rugby match a year, the SES versus <gasps> the SBS. You know, that's, that's quite tough. We've somehow got to get some tickets to that when we can, Tom. Me and you, we're going to have to secretly, we're going to dive. We're going to get Dean to teach us to dive, as in in the water, in not the water. out of planes. I'm not doing planes, mate. I can't, I don't like heights. In fact, I'm not doing the diving bit. I can't swim. You have to <laughs> swim to be able to do scuba diving. Uh, yeah, well, you, you do. Well, in the engineers are divers who, who need to be, you know, negatively buoyant at the bottom. You know, you'd probably be good for that, doing some engineering tasks. But yeah. What, I, hang on, what's negatively buoyant? You mean sink? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never, <laughs> that is, I've never fucking heard that before. I've been called a fat fuck and hey, fatty, you're going to sink to the bottom, but that is the best way to do dis- <laughs> He's negatively buoyant. I like it. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Well, I, I came from the Royal Engineers and, and that's one of the reasons I went SPS. I was a senior dive instructor in the Royal Engineers. So we used to do tasks underwater that you would do on the surface, be it, you know, concreting, chainsaws, circular saws as well but you need to be negatively buoyant so those that weren't negatively buoyant it had big weighted boots or, or dive weights along so it's perfect for you John. <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you so much dean i'm going to explore the next part of my life which is life after rugby <laughs> i'm gonna be i can't swim so they're gonna sink me and then make shit if you make me go to the bottom of the sea and drag loads of cases of ammunition on my back having to thingy from one end of the sea to the other, then um, you can get fucked if that's an offer. I'm sorry, I'm, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Anyway, that, we digress. Dean, thank you so much for coming on and telling us uh, about Special Forces and also an insight into your own story. I've thoroughly enjoyed that, mate. Thanks a lot. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So, Joe, there we go. That was the Stockmeister. That was Stotterucci. Stotterlini. Did you enjoy it? Oh, okay, so you're coming up with those nicknames now that the SBS Special Armed Forces <laughs> guy has, le- has left. He's left the call, and you've just called him the. S- he's going to listen to this, though, isn't he? Yes, he, he is. And hunt me down. Yeah, a hundred percent. He has a like, like he said about Liam Neeson. He was like, I have a particular set of. I'm trying to get my Liam Neeson voice. Hi, I, okay. I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. He hides his uh, Scottish accent. Not so Irish. Oh, he's Irish. There we go. He's hidden it well. Oh fuck. Uh, I, I have a particular set of skills. I will find you. I will hunt you down, and when I do, I'll kill you. You've made my one Scottish. Yeah, you sound like Robert the Bruce when he Judas's William Wallace. Hey, Dad, what you made me do? I never wanted to do it. Longshanks, fucking fuck, Longshanks. He was a fucking bastard. Did you feel, Joe, that you learnt some stuff there that you didn't know before? Because I did. I felt like I got mugged off. Um. <laughs> By the blokes down at Limpston um, that put me through my paces and the rest of the squad, I definitely got mugged off. And I feel like during that trip, Courtney Laws was in my team on the end day where we had to do like a 5k run carrying a stretcher. 
and he gave up after about 500 metres and got in the back of this truck that was following us. And we are like, what are you doing? He was like, mate, I've got blisters. I was like, pardon? And he just watched us struggle for the... And it makes me think that I should have just told the people that were screaming at me to go faster to get fucked and just jumped in the back of the van with Courtney. Um, if you're liking this show and you want to support it, search for Joe Marler Show on Patreon. If you want another podcast to listen to, we would like to recommend La French Rugby Podcast with Benjamin Kayser and Johnny Beatty. If you want to know what actually goes on inside French rugby, Benji and Johnny are the guys to listen to. Just search for French Rugby in your podcast app. It'll come up. Tell me what our next episode is about, please. I shall, Joe. Our next episode is about police dogs. Oh! So Will, who listens to this show, got in touch to say he'd love to be a guest. He works with police dogs. He's coming on next week. It's that simple. Oh, lovely. I can't wait to see Will next week. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.